talking about uh, happy are the humble. It's the first uh, of the Beatitudes found in verse 3. Within this section, these 12 verses, is really the start of Jesus reteaching those who had been hearing what had been taught by the Pharisees. Because what had been going on is the Pharisees had been perverting the, the message, changing it to fit what they wanted, teaching what they thought was important, excluding other things, and, and putting certain rules and regulations and things upon the people and not upon themselves. And so this is really the start of, of what we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, and within it is going to be a number of teachings which these folks would have been familiar with, these concepts, but they had been twisted. And often as you get further on into chapters 5, 6, and 7, you know, Jesus will say, you've heard it was said, but I tell you, because he's teaching from a position of knowing the scripture, knowing what was behind the creation of that. In fact, when we get into John, in the very first part of John, we're reminded that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And, and we're told later on in, in that chapter that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we are understanding that Jesus is the Word. And so this was all a part of who he was. He knew this concept intimately. And so when he starts to teach, it's important to listen to what he's saying because he knows exactly what it is that God wants from us, how we are to live our lives. And so he starts at the very beginning. And the last time I was here, I talked about the concept of humility and how the concept of humility is necessary in order to go any further in the Christian life. If you want to be able to be saved, if you want to be able to be a follower of God, you've got to start at square one, which is humility, realizing the difference between you and God. And that there is a gulf and difference between us in those terms. And so he starts with humility. That's the building block. And then he, he moves on to this concept of blessed or happy are the sad. Well, that kind of seems like a contradiction, right? How can you be happy and sad at the same time? Well, I think hopefully at the end of this lesson, you'll have an understanding of what Jesus is trying to get across to us and why we ought to be happy when we're sad for the right reasons. And so that leads us then to this concept of what are the reasons for mourning? Why should we mourn? Well, there are, are, there are some improper reasons for mourning, you know, uh, when we don't get what we want, <laughs> you know. Your children are really good at this one, you know. If they don't get what they want, they want that toy and they don't get it. They want this thing or that thing. But, you know, uh, adults can be very childish in that sense as well. And to mourn those things, mourn those things that we should not have, mourn those things that we do not need, to be upset about those things, those are things that are improper, that we don't need to mourn over. Then there are things that are proper for us to mourn. We mourn the loss of a loved one, someone who's very important to us, someone who meant a lot to us. And, and that's a very proper way of mourning. We mourn or ought to mourn the separation from God. And that's really kind of where Jesus is talking about this morning. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. We 
can mourn, when we are discouraged, when we are defeated, when, when things kind of take a wrong turn, maybe because of our judgment, maybe because of the judgment of others, we can cry for things like Jeremiah crying for Israel. You know, he wrote the book of Lamentations. He's referred to as the weeping prophet because he cried over the anguish that he felt for Israel's decision to be unfaithful to God and what was coming about as a result of that. Peter shed tears over his sin, and I think that's one of the things that, that we're going to focus on the rest of the morning. And of course, Lazar, Jesus shedding tears at the death of Lazarus, showing again that the death of a loved one is a very proper form of mourning. But what Jesus is getting at in this isn't any of that. What he's getting at is mourning because of being sorrowful for the sin that is in our lives. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians is a book that follows 1 Corinthians, which is why we call it 2 Corinthians. See how that works, 1st and 2nd? 1 Corinthians is a book written to a congregation in Corinth that had a lot of problems. Paul points out a number of issues that they were facing and things that were going on that they shouldn't have been doing that he'd heard about. And he wrote to them in a rebuke. Really, 1 Corinthians is really a rebuke. It's a love letter of rebuke. Now, that sounds weird, but Paul loved the group there so much and loved the Christians there so much and was so concerned about their soul and the way they were going, he wrote a letter of rebuke to, to get them back on track. And then the book of 2 Corinthians, the letter is really a response to hearing of how they had changed their ways from the rebuke letter he wrote. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 10, Paul has this to say, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through, or excuse me, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. That's important to remember because he goes on to say there's another type of sorrow and that is, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Paul said there are two types of sorrow you can have. There's worldly sorrow, that leads to death. Because worldly sorrow isn't actually sorrow. It isn't actually being upset at what you've done. Worldly sorrow is being upset that you got caught at what you did. And you apologize for getting caught, not actually what you did. Listen to celebrities and politicians and all these people who offer up apologies for the acts that they've done. And they're not really sorrowful for the acts they've done. They're sorrowful with it that the acts that they've done came to light, got out. And for many of them, they're going to go right back to doing what they were doing under the cover of darkness. That's worldly sorrow. 
It's not actually being sorry for the thing you've done to the point where you'll go back to doing it. That's why it leads to death. Because there's no real change in a person's life. Think about how many people enter rehab for different things and how often they go right back to what they were doing because they didn't really want to change. You know, part of the process of rehabilitation is you have to want to change. You have to want to get rid of that which you were doing. And if you really don't want to do that, then rehab's not going to work. You can go as many times as you want. It's still not going to make a difference. And Paul contrasts worldly sorrow with what he saw there in Corinth from the folks when he wrote the first letter. And that was that they had changed their ways. They had recognized and taken to heart what Paul had said, and they made a change. They had repented, and as a result, were headed to salvation. See, that's the point what, that Jesus is trying to make here, is that what kind of sorrow do you have about your sin? About the things that you have done wrong, and the reality is we're all sinners, Paul makes that clear in Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. No doubt about that. We are all sinners. Not a one of us can stand up and go, ah, I'm good. I don't need to repent of anything. It's one of the things that puts us all in the same playing field. Peter, when he preached what we refer to as the first gospel sermon in Acts, he essentially tells everybody there, you, just like me, we all need Jesus. We all need a Savior. We all need Him as our Lord. Not a one of us can escape that. And this is why humility, recognizing who we are, and recognizing who God is, leads to sorrow. It leads to godly sorrow. It leads to an anger, a, a grief, an anguish over what we have done and a desire to make a change, a desire for that to be changed. And God has laid out and said, if you are willing to admit you're wrong, I have a plan to save you. I have a plan to help you. And so... The end of that verse tells us that the reward for mourning is comfort. Well, what is this comfort? What is the comfort that God provides? Paul laid it out in 2 Corinthians. The comfort of godly sorrow is salvation. Because godly sorrow leads to repentance. It leads to us changing our ways. And as a result... God wipes away our sin. That's a blessing that's not found anywhere else. That's why worldly sorrow doesn't work. Because God's not involved. The sin is still there. You're still stained with it. Again, the imagery that we, we see with, with forgiveness of sins is, is that Jesus' blood blots it out. That God can no longer see it. He no longer holds it against us. It's gone. Forever. It's not brought back up. It's not like we do with each other. You know? 
if we cause harm to one another, we may say, yeah, I forgive you, but boy, we still remember that. We still bring it back up. You remember that time when you, I thought you gave forgave me for it. Yeah, but do you remember, you know? We like to use it against each other. But God wipes it all away. He doesn't bring it back up. Forgiveness means it's gone. It's hidden. Out of His sight. It is as if it never happened. That's the blessing of godly sorrow. Is it leads to true repentance. And again, the concept of repentance is a turning away. It is a 180 degree turn. It is going in the opposite direction because the direction you're going in is clearly not the right direction. And so repentance, true repentance means I have to give it up. I have to get rid of it. I have to make a change. And so when we look at examples in the Bible of those who are repentant, we look at individuals who have changed their ways, who have completely become different. And of course, the best example we have, of course, is Saul, right? Who became Paul. He, he changed his ways so much, he changed his name. You know? He was going in a direction, and he realized that direction was wrong, and he changed. And people noticed a difference. Wait a minute, wasn't this Saul? Wasn't this the guy who was persecuting us just a few weeks ago, and now... He's on our side? Is this some sort of trick? Is he trying to get us, you know? He's infiltrate us and then turn against us? But there is this concept that Jesus is trying to teach us. It is the basis of the Christian life. These, these Beatitudes are the basis of how we ought to live. You see, everything that really follows after the Beatitudes... If you are doing the Beatitudes, those things ought to be easy to do. They ought to become part of who we are. They ought to be able to be done because they're incorporated in the concepts already that have been discussed by Jesus, the foundation of our lives. And so he starts with humility, recognizing who we are, recognizing who God is, recognizing our need for a Savior, and that recognition that humility should lead to godly sorrow should lead to repentance. And, and that repentance then leads to comfort. Comfort because we know that we are now in the hands of the loving God. That our souls are forever protected. See, the imagery that, that God uses within Scripture to explain the fact that our souls are in His hands and protected by Him and that nobody can do anything is this idea of kind of like a strong box that nobody can get into unless you let them in. That once you are in the arms of God, nobody can get to you unless you let them. Unless you leave the safety of God, unless you open the door, there's nobody getting through. But that requires us to be trusting of God, to believe that the comfort is there. And the truth of the matter is, we're not always going to receive that comfort here in terms of how we want. We're not always going to receive the things within a worldly mindset, a worldly concept, because that's not what God is wanting us to think about. 
The New Testament is focused on a spiritual mindset, looking forward to heaven, thinking of what is to come, planning for the life after this, because this life is but a vapor, as James describes it. And so there is this part of this mindset that Jesus is putting out there is to look at things in a different way, to view them from a spiritual concept and not from a worldly concept, not from an earthly concept. And that's sometimes hard for us to do because we're surrounded by earthliness. It's all we know in many cases. And so we look to Jesus, we look to his example to know what spiritual life looks like, how we ought to be spiritual beings. So you may be asking, okay, this is all great, Jason, but how, how do we get there? What do we do in order to truly receive or truly get to godly sorrow? Well, it requires a couple of steps. First, it requires eliminating those things that are an obstacle to you admitting your sin. You admitting you need help. You admitting that we have done something wrong and that the only way back is through Jesus. And so that means doing things like getting rid of your love of sin. Letting go of those things that we know that are wrong, that we shouldn't be doing, that we shouldn't be participating in, that shouldn't be a part of our lives. Letting them go and falling in love with God and the things that He teaches. Getting rid of, of things like despair and, and conceit and, and believing that we know everything, we have all the answers. You ever met somebody who has all the answers, who knows everything, you know, who's got it all figured out? If you do, run. Okay? Don't listen to them. Run. I'm always amazed. It, it just baffles my mind. I love the fact that on TV they always have these experts. You know? This is an expert in this. This is an expert in this. This is an expert in this. And how often do the experts turn out wrong? You know? More, they're wrong more often than they are right. It's, that's the one job you want to have. If you can get a job, become an expert. Because you can be wrong and still be an expert. I don't know how that works, but it works. But the truth is, we've got to get over believing we can save ourselves, that we can solve our own problems, that we can fix our sin, because we can't. We also have to get over this idea of being too proud to admit we're wrong. There are a lot of people who just don't want to admit they're wrong. They're afraid it'll make them look weak. It'll, they're afraid it'll forever tarnish them and their legacy. And they don't want to admit that. They want to be perfect. I hate to break it to them, but they're not. I know they're not. You know they're not. But it's hard to say sorry. We talked this morning in Bible class about Jacob and Esau and the relationship there. How hard that must have been for Jacob to admit he was wrong. To go before Esau and admit that. You know, that took a lot of courage to say, I am the problem here. I made the mistake. We don't like to do that. We don't like to go to others we've hurt and others that we have caused problems for and say, I'm sorry. It's on me. I made the mistake. We like to pass the buck. 
but it doesn't work with God that way. I cannot apologize and, and repent for your sin. You can't do it for mine. I have to go before God and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And the difference between God and man is, he'll know if you're telling the truth. He'll know if it's real sorrow, if it's godly sorrow, or if it's worldly sorrow. If you're only upset because you got caught, not because you were doing something you shouldn't have been. We've got to get rid of that. We've got to move that stuff away. And we have to stop worrying about what other people will think about us and worry about what is my relationship with God like. That comes first. That's at the top. You worry about your relationship with God. And here's the thing I'm going to tell you. I'm going to be absolutely honest with you. If you worry about your relationship with God, and if that means that you have to admit you've done wrong, which it will, and if you sometimes have to do that publicly, which you may have to, guess what that's going to do? It's not going to tarnish you. It's going to be an example to the rest of us who need to do the same thing. It means you can be held up. It means that you can lead, that you can say, I understand, I've been there, I've done that. It means that you're the type of person God is building His church Because the only people who have the promise of salvation are those who have been willing to admit their sin and seek forgiveness. It's not available to anybody else. And you may fool the world, you may fool us, but you won't fool God. You'll have to face Him someday and He'll see through it. He sees the heart. He sees the truth. And there's no defense. We know that God hates sin. We know that, that there's no love of that. I know it was mentioned that you guys are studying 1 John. One of the key concepts in 1 John is light and darkness. That God is light and sin is darkness. And you can't have a foot in both worlds. You cannot be part of the world and sinning and part of God and receive salvation. It doesn't work like that. You have to commit. You have to be in the light to be part of God. Following chapter verse 12 out of Matthew chapter 5, it talks about the concept that we are the light of the world. It's a reference to the fact that we are to be a reflection of God, which is light. That the world is in darkness, the world is in sin. We are bringing about light. The best illustration of this happened at the cross. Do you remember what happened at the cross? When Jesus is there and God lays the sin of the world upon his shoulders, do you remember what happens? The sun is blotted out. The light goes away. Darkness takes over for a brief amount of time while God turns away. Why? Because God cannot be associated with darkness, with sin. It's not a part of Him. And so while that sin was on Jesus, there was darkness. But it was for just a brief time. Just a short amount of time. It was soon 
relieved. The darkness went away and lightness shined brightly. Christ, through his life and his sacrifice, forever took away the darkness. If you let him. But you have to admit it. You have to have the sorrow that comes from realizing your relationship with God needs repair and you can't do it, but God can. And repenting of that sin. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, Jesus tells his followers to be like little children. To become like them in order to receive salvation. Little children are reliant upon their parents, reliant upon their father. They realize they need them. We ought to be the same in our Christian walk to realize we need the father. There is no hope. There is no salvation. There's nothing without God. But with him, there's everything. With him, there's comfort. And so we can take and be happy in our godly sorrow because we recognize that our godly sorrow brings repentance, which brings the salvation, the grace, the mercy, the love of God to us. And that ought to comfort us. That ought to make us happy. Not at the sin that we have committed, but at the response of God to our sorrow over that sin. Because it's a response that you're not going to find anywhere else. Only in God. Only God will say, I know you've hurt me, and I know you've done wrong things, but I'm going to wipe it away anyways because you want to be mine, and I want you to be mine. That familiar passage in Romans where it talks about the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Because he wanted for us to be happy. To repent and know that there was salvation available for us. The book of Psalms, chapter 119. We get to this passage. But I want to go back a few verses. This is the key verse, but I want us to go all the way back in Psalm 119 to verse 120, 129. I want us to start there because I think it helps us get to understand verse 136. Psalm 119, starting in verse 129, it says, The testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul observes them. The unfolding of thy words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for thy commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me after thy manner with those who love thy name. Establish my footsteps in thy word, and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep thy precepts. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant, and teach me thy statutes. 
these verses here, they talk about understanding what we've done. Understanding the sin we've committed and desiring to give that up and to desire to be a follower of God, to be His child. And then verse 136 says, My eyes shed streams of water. Why? Because they do not keep thy law. The writer says, hey, I understand all this. Help me to be better. Help me to be who I am. I cry. I grieve because I haven't done that. But I want to. Do you find yourself there today? Do you find yourself in that mindset today? In order to receive the salvation of God, in order to receive His blessing of mercy and grace and the forgiveness of sin, the wiping it away, you have to admit you're wrong. You have to have the sorrow that drives you to your knees to admit to God, I am grieving over my sin because I haven't done what I'm supposed to do and I want to. Help me change. Help me to be who you call me to be. Help me to walk in your light. That's what God is looking for. That's what He commands of us. To do anything less is to do what the world does and to pretend. And what that's going to lead to, well, Jesus talked about there being two roads. It's going to lead you down the broad way. And the end of that is destruction. It's not God. It may be feel right. It may be right by the world's standards, but it's not what's right. The other way is a harder way. The other way requires an admittance of guilt, of sin, and a begging of forgiveness, and a repentance, a turning away from those things that we've been doing, and heading down the path that is narrow, that the world rejects and there not be many on that road. But that's the road we're called to walk. That's what we're called to do. And so this morning, as is always done, we offer the invitation to those who have yet to admit their guilt, who have yet to say to God, I have committed sin against you. And I want to change my ways. I want to repent and I want to confess and I want to be baptized to be washed clean and to get up and walk with you. Because baptism is just the beginning. It's not the end. It's just the beginning. There will be a lot of people who will do that who will still walk down the broad way. But the good news is for those who have already been baptized, maybe you've also sinned. Maybe you've walked off the road. There's a way back. There's repentance still available to us as well. To repent and come back and admit to God we've sinned. And He will again forgive us. He will again bring us into His arms. And what we do from there is up to us. Do we stay in His arms or do we leave? the safety of His salvation. The choice is ours, always ours. What will you do with that choice? What will you do? Will you commit to God or commit to yourself and the world?
May you have the godly sorrow you need to lead you down the right path. And if there's anything we can do, any way we can help you to achieve salvation, to get there, to be faithful and obedient to God, any way to support and encourage that so that you will receive the blessing of that, then we want to provide that this morning. If there's any way we can help, we encourage you to come forward as we stand and sing.